Welcome to Sagittarius Eye, issue 32, January 3307, expertly recorded to keep you entertained and informed out in the black. Editorial. As commanders, we often have the privilege to take part in some truly grand events. And probably one of the grandest events since the Frameshift Drive was released is just now entering its final stages. The Deep Space Support Array, known by most as the DSSA, can surely take this title. Almost 90 fleet carriers have now been deployed to their long-term positions far away from the bubble to provide a port of call for the weary explorer. Each carrier deployment has practically been an expedition in its own right. While the Distant Worlds expeditions were significant in the sheer number of pilots setting off at once to the other side of the galaxy, the DSSA expeditions have, by now, many thousands of participants. And let's not forget the contribution of the owner of each DSSA fleet carrier, essentially donating an asset worth 5 billion credits, plus running costs, of course, to the cause. While the DSSA extends to the far reaches of the galaxy, there are still plenty of systems shrouded in secrecy in our own backyard. This month, we take a look at the unassuming LFT-509 system, and why you should probably be paying more attention to it, especially as the dark wheel marches, or should we say, rolls, ever close. We also take a look at railguns and our third feature on hardpoints. These weapons can be difficult to use but highly devastating and especially useful for the commander who is deeply involved in faction politics, which, as many earlier articles have shown, can sometimes take a violent turn into a full-blown war. By the time we go to publication, we're expecting to know exactly when the Pilots' Federation Odyssey initiative will begin in earnest. We are eagerly awaiting its challenges, and undoubtedly in future issues, this will bring a crop of new experiences for you as well as articles for us. As always, we are by commanders for commanders, but we hope to welcome a ground-based contingent in the near future. A galaxy-spanning network, the Deep Space Support Array. Any commander who has ventured out into the black can vouch that it's a lonely process. In the early days of the frame shift drive, exploration was particularly rough. Long distances spanning hundreds of empty systems, jumping only a couple dozen light years at a time, and with no place to truly rest and recuperate until a return to the creature comforts of the bubble. Over the years, exploration has become easier. Engineer upgrades can bolster FSD jump ranges more than having the required number of jumps to reach a target. All FSDs have been engineered to take advantage of the unique magnetic fields of neutron stars and white dwarfs to supercharge and jump hundreds of light years at once. Through material synthesis, vessels, supplies, and holes can be replenished, enabling well-equipped explorers to venture out into the black for years without returning home to resupply. Perhaps the most significant boon for lonely explorers, though, has been the company. Obviously, you don't put hundreds of light years between yourself and any other human being if you don't have a yearning for solitude. 
but even the most dedicated loners can appreciate a chance to dock their ships in a safe place and relax for a few minutes before venturing back out into the black. Perhaps the first place one could do so was Jacques Station, which, after an FSD malfunction, became stranded in the region that would come to be known as Colonia. Commanders on their way to Sagittarius A-Star, the black hole at the center of the galaxy, or perhaps heading further out to Beagle Point, then the furthest attainable distance from Seoul, could stop in and get a drink with the cyborg station owner. As Colonia grew more settled and greater traffic began to flow between that region and the bubble, the Pilots' Federation launched initiatives to construct waypoint stations along the route, resulting in the so-called Colonia Connection. Now, deep space exploration didn't have to be quite so isolating. No matter where commanders traveled in the galaxy, they were always closer to safety than they had been in the early days of exploration. Onboard discovery scanner protocols received a badly needed update two years ago to maintain explorers' interest and reduce distracted flying. The largest and most recent such initiative, however, was not led by the planet-bound minor factions and their corporate wealth. With the recent release of fleet carrier licenses to Pilots Federation commanders, a group of such star-bound warriors have taken it upon themselves to build our own network of safe havens across the galaxy. The result is the Deep Space Support Array, or DSSA. At the heart of this initiative is a group called FleetCom, a loose association of exploration-focused commanders. The network, centered around a communications channel, formed in 3302 to expedite the first distant world's expedition, has strict cooperative ethics. Member commanders are not allowed to harm other commanders. Over the years, FleetCom has expanded its membership to almost 10,000 commanders and has supported various expeditions and explorer factions since distant worlds. As of this writing, the group has five currently active expeditions listed on their server. In late 3305, when fleet carrier licenses were announced and carriers' capacities revealed to the public, these commanders began to plan for how they could use this new capacity to support their members, as well as other explorers. In April 3306, Commander Cohen Leth, who has since left FleetCom, posted on the Pilots Federation forums, publicly launching the DSSA initiative in cooperation with the Galactic Mapping Project and the Distant Worlds organizers. The premise? Over a hundred commanders would fly their privately owned carriers to predetermined locations in deep space and leave them there for at least one year at a time, complete with sufficient funds to support explorers that visited. The initiative planned to provide at least one of these deep space outposts in each of the 42 recognized regions of the galaxy, so that no matter where explorers were, a safe haven was always within relatively easy reach. Since the initiative's launch in June, with the release of carriers to commanders, FleetCom has been hard at work deploying carriers across the galaxy. The initiative was publicized as eventually involving at least 100 carriers. As of the time of this writing, 87 carriers are deployed and available to explorers. Fleet carriers are not cheap. They are behemoths, coming in at 5 billion credits for the base model. That doesn't account for any of the various services commanders can purchase for their carriers, so as to bring their capacities in line with traditional starports. The most expensive upgrades for carriers are the shipyard and outfitting services, each of which go for a quarter billion credits. 
That upfront cost is considerable, but it isn't the end of the story. Fleet carriers require more upkeep than small-scale vessels, and so have weekly maintenance costs. A base carrier requires its owner to spend 5 million credits a week to maintain the vessel. Each optional upgrade tacked onto the vessel requires more than a million credits in additional weekly expenses, adding up for a fully equipped vessel to 26.7 million credits in weekly upkeep. Even almost 27 million credits may not seem like a big deal when compared to an initial purchase cost in the billions, but these expenses add up. Carriers in the DSSA are intended to be in place for at least one year at a time. That means a carrier with no optional upgrades installed can expect to rack up more than a quarter of a billion credits in expenses before its service ends. A fully outfitted carrier will accumulate 1,338.4 billion credits in expenses over that same year, more than a quarter of the initial purchase cost of the carrier. But wait, we're not done! Because in addition to the expense of buying the thing and keeping the thing available, the thing has to be moved into position. On a traditional vessel, an FSD jump is relatively simple, requiring only that a commander have sufficient fuel easily replenished by visiting a station or scooping fuel from a star and hit a button to activate the drive. Fleet carrier jumps, though, are transferring far larger masses over much larger distances. Carriers' FSDs have maximum jump ranges of 500 light years. To that end, carrier owners must pay wear and tear expenses for each jump, 100,000 credits worth, basically pocket change for these super rich individuals. Of more logistical concerns are fuel costs. Carriers' FSDs operate on a specialized kind of fuel called tritium, which can be mined from icy asteroids or purchased from refinery economies. Each carrier jump requires dozens of tons of tritium transported to the vessel either by its owner or by other helpful commanders. For a carrier to travel tens of thousands of light years to the most distant reaches of the galaxy incurs expenses in the millions and requires hundreds of tons of tritium. To this end, the DSSA has launched affiliated expeditions for teams of commanders to escort carriers to their destinations. On top of these costs, carrier frame shift drive jumps take considerably longer than standard ones. A carrier jump requires a 15-minute charge-up time and a 5-minute cooldown post-jump. All in all, commanders contributing their ships are making huge investments on behalf of the community. Perhaps most significantly, carrier owners are sacrificing most, if not all, of the profits a carrier is usually expected to give their owners. Owners can set tariffs on station services, increasing the prices and taking these increases as profits. A fleet carrier parked in a traffic-intensive star system, therefore, can rake in enormous profits for their owners, helping make up for their enormous maintenance costs. Carriers that are part of the DSSA, however, can expect to see hardly any traffic. They are intentionally located out of the way of popular travel routes. Explorers are a generous bunch, though, and might bestow as much patronage as possible upon their favorite outposts. Mining expeditions in deep space could result in large profits for both explorers and carrier owners alike. While barriers to entry for potential donors might seem high, there are more volunteers than one might expect. Due to lucrative careers as skilled pilots, many commanders have had billions of credits burning holes in their figurative pockets for years now, with nothing to spend them on. 
As of now, the DSSA's outpost slate is full up. As is typical of the Pilots' Federation community, various factions are collaborating to make the DSSA a success. The Galactic Mapping Project has been adding outposts to its star map as points of interest. Carriers have to have appropriate names and such, but carriers in place for more than two years will achieve permanent POI status, even if they should move on. They will be considered historical markers. Commander Aramus Kamzel, ever a fixture of the exploration community, has stated that the forthcoming Distant Worlds 3 expedition, plans for which will be developed as the Pilots Federation's Odyssey initiative is laid out, will also rely extensively on the DSSA. The Distant Worlds expeditions have historically attracted thousands of commanders. Another notable tool for commanders has been developed specifically to accompany the DSSA. Commander Fly Dangerous 07, working with a team of other developers, has created the Passport System, a kind of public record of visits to DSSA outposts. Commanders can check in at various carriers and earn marks on their passport to mark their travels across the galaxy. Each carrier has its own entry in the system, and most of them have their own emblem as well. In addition, the ED Astro tool, overseen by Commander Orvidius has developed an interactive galactic map, displaying the locations of all active carriers. Commanders can view individual carriers and see which services are available where, and even see the locations of to-be-deployed carriers. The furthest carrier from Seoul, for example, is the DSSA Distant Worlds, located at Beagle Point, more than 60,000 light-years from the bubble. The carrier offers refuel, repair, armory, redemption office, shipyard, outfitting, secure warehouse, and universal cartographics services as of this writing. Even though it has yet to reach its desired size of 100 plus carriers, the network is truly massive, spanning nearly every one of the 42 galactic regions. It is an impressive achievement for such a short span of time. Stories of triumph abounded and one particular achievement stood out. On the 30th of November, Commander Spinelane of Fleetcom announced that he had successfully visited each of the 87 carriers currently deployed. In a path that had crisscrossed the galaxy in a ship with a maximum jump range of just under 78 light years, Spinelane traveled around 800,000 light years and made around 16,000 FSD jumps. He ended his extended travel at Explorer's Bar and Grill, a suitable destination because, as he said, I need a drink. Fellow Fleetcom members believed it to be the first time anyone had ever achieved such a thing. Curious readers can see his filled out passport on the passport system mentioned above. This correspondent also had a chance to sit down and talk with Commander Naughty, the project's current administrator who took over after Cohen left step back in July. First, we asked Naughty to speak on how he joined Fleetcom in the first place and how he wound up in charge of the DSSA. I joined Fleet Comp for DW2 and was pretty much a lurker throughout the expedition. When I learned about Fleet Carriers last year, I thought they might be fun to use, but I wasn't sure how I could justify getting one personally. Then I read about DSSA on the forums and realized that a great use of the Fleet Carrier would be participating in the DSSA. The DSSA was started by Cohen Leth, who, with a small group of commanders supporting him, got the whole concept up and running. I pretty much just signed on as a Fleet Carrier number 46 on his list. 
One of the things that has made the DSSA so successful is that it's really a distributed network of semi-independent expeditions where each fleet carrier owner runs his own expedition. Anyway, I got excited about running an expedition, something I'd never done before, and began actively recruiting other players to come along. We launched the day after the fleet carrier's release as part of the larger Aphelion expedition, then split off at SAG A to our deployment area in the Arcadia stream. On Callisto, we probably had about 80 signups. I'd say the core group was more like 30 to 40 active participants. Somewhere along the way, I guess I caught someone's attention in Fleetcom and was offered the DSSA leadership when Cohen stepped down in July. On what expeditions entailed, Naughty had this to say. Each expedition is different. Some have had pretty large numbers and some have been solo deployments. Both approaches work. The tritium requirements have changed over time. These days an FC can buy a full hold in the bubble or colonia and almost complete a round trip anywhere in the galaxy. I actually think that's a bad thing since it effectively removed the mining requirement that made the deep space fleet carrier expedition so interesting. I imagine most commanders are buying tritium these days since it's easier to mine a more lucrative resource, sell it, and buy gobs of tritium than it is to actually mine the stuff. It's found in icy rings with double overlapping hotspots generally being the best place to mine. On how fleet carriers were used once being deployed, he said this. I love the idea that the DSSA carriers would be used as depots and mining platforms, but the mechanics of the fleet carrier fuel use make it fairly impractical. The primary mission behind DSSA, to provide a safe haven for commanders in the profound dark of deep space, is exactly how most FCs are being used. I get messages pretty regularly about commanders selling millions of worths of exploration data and getting repaired at fleet carriers throughout the network. We've had a couple of commanders limp in with blown cockpits who survived because a DSSA fleet carrier was within reach. Love reading when that happens. There are a few commanders who are making an effort to visit every one of the DSSA fleet carriers. It's a great challenge. We've also set up a passport app that allows commanders to log the fleet carriers they visited. I've been a little negligent, due to out-of-cockpit stuff, about updating some of the patches, but plan to have it formally launched soon. It's currently in open beta. Nadi opened up about his own role in the project and how much work it entails. Cohen Leth did the lion's share of the work getting things organized and off the ground. My day-to-day -day is mostly logistics, making sure fleet carriers are deployed where they're supposed to be light spreadsheet wrangling, and communications within Fleetcom and the other fleet carrier owners. It's really organizational and opens up the real work to be left to each fleet carrier owner within the DSSA. If you think of it as 87 separate expeditions completed to date and two dozen more in planning, that's real work and is distributed among the fleet carrier owners. That's the genius of Cohen's initial structure. Nobody's really coordinating all these expeditions. Each one is pretty much self-run. The big goal is to have two to three carriers in every uninhabited region, and we're pretty close to that. I'd also add that I've been a commander since my college days in the 3280s, and that Callisto expedition was probably the single most fun thing I've done in those years. I think a lot of the fleet carrier owners and commanders who've gone along with them feel the same. There's something about the small group dynamics of an expedition that is based off a fleet carrier, which is just the right amount of social and self-driven activity. I'd add that comms like Fleetcom Voice Channel are really critical to that as well. It's a big goal, getting the fleet carrier out in deep space. I think players enjoy being a part of that, and enjoy the camaraderie that this can create. 
Naughty also shared an amusing discovery during his expedition that they had picked up a stowaway. Yeah, I got a message in comms while waiting down a jump timer that we'd lost a commander who didn't make it back to the fleet carrier in time. I didn't recognize the name and couldn't find him on my roster. After a few minutes of asking, turns out he had stowed away on the fleet carrier in the bubble. We also changed our route to pick up Charlie Hall from Polygon Magazine and bring him along with us. He started on Cohen's fleet carrier and I think wanted more expedition time so he joined us after Cohen deployed. Anyway, lots of great stories, I'd guess on almost every expedition and all done in an environment that leads to people getting to know each other and becoming friends. The initiative is still ongoing, and members of the Pilots Federation community are invited to help by joining Fleetcom and ex expeditions to guide carriers into position across the galaxy. On the 22nd of November, DSSA's most recent expedition, Mercury's Wings, launched, and it will be completed in early 3307. With more than 100 participants, the expedition will span more than 60,000 light-years and convey the carrier DSSA Shepherd's Dream to its posting. The array is mostly deployed at this point, and the big push to get fleet carriers out into the black is pretty much winding down. I do expect that there will be a turnover when the DSSA is about a year old, as the first wave of fleet carriers reaches the end of its minimum one-year commitment. Some of them will stay, but I'm sure Others will return to civilized space and need to be replaced. I do keep a reserve list of commanders interested in participating that way. It's linked on the original DSSA thread post. Aside from that, and it'll be a long wait to be honest, the best thing to do is visit the DSSA fleet carriers and utilize their services. There's also a participation in the Passport app. The DSSA is an exciting and ongoing opportunity for the Pilot Federation's most dedicated members to provide valuable support to their amazing explorer comrades. Sign up today by visiting Fleetcom's server and volunteering to help. The Mystery of LFT-509 at first glance, LFT-509 appears to be a perfectly ordinary, even a rather boring, star system. If it were outside the bubble, it would be the kind of star that explorers would filter out of their routes, unless they were desperate for fuel. The system is a binary, consisting of two Class M dwarf stars, with a handful of unremarkable planets orbiting each. That it retains its basic star catalogue name only adds to its apparent insignificance. Its name stems from the Leuton 5 tenths star catalogue, hence the prefix LFT. And you won't be surprised to learn that it's the 509th entry in this catalogue. The LFT catalogue was compiled in 1955 by Willem Jakob Leuton. Leuton's catalogues are named after the proper motion of their stars, now an obsolete measurement that was used to chart the motion of celestial objects relative to the Earth. The 5 tenths refers to a proper motion exceeding five-tenths of one second of arc per year, this being a fairly high speed across the skies of Earth, usually indicating that the star in question is relatively close to the Earth. As such, most stars in the LFT catalogue are within 100 light-years of Sol. LFT 509 itself lies just over 53 light-years from Sol. The other Leuton catalogues that pilots will be familiar with are all based on measurements of proper motion. The LHS, half second per year, the successor to the LFT catalogue, 
the LTT, two-tenths of a second, the NLTT, New Leuton two-tenths, and the LPM, Leuton proper motion. Universal Cartographic seems to have taken a somewhat arbitrary approach to which catalogue it used when charting these stars. LFT 509 isn't the only name this system goes by. It was also listed as a systematic name in other catalogues, and it's listed as Ross 54 and HIP 34104 in the Ross and Hipparchus catalogues, respectively. It also appears in other Leuton catalogues. Were it not for the Pilots' Federation, LFT 509 would have remained a minor astronomical curiosity and nothing more. At most, an intermediate jump point on a trading route. This changed on the 10th of March, 3301. Without fanfare, LFT 509 was permit-locked, along with a few other systems, preventing any starships from entering. The procedures and systems around permit-locking are entirely opaque. Nobody, except presumably a cabal in the Pilots' Federation, sanctioned most likely by the galactic superpowers, knows why a system is permit-locked, at least for the most part. For some star systems, such as Sirius, the reason for the permit lock is obvious. The corporate owner of the system requested it, and the Pilots' Federation agreed. There were rumours, back in March 3301, that a whole of valuable salvage was to be found in LFT 509, but this doesn't seem like enough of a reason to lock the system away. Occasionally, a system will have the permit lock removed. The Fector system, for example, once a perilous anarchy, now a productive member of the Alliance. For many other star systems, however, and indeed entire regions, the reason for permit locking is often unknown, and the Pilots' Federation simply stonewalls any inquiries. This usually leads to speculation that ranges from the unlikely to straight-up tinfoil hattery. Permit locking has also become significantly more draconian over the years. Fifty years ago, a permit lock wouldn't have prevented you from physically entering the system in question. Fifty years ago, it would have merely resulted in a fine. And in any case, most permits were easy to obtain. Today, by contrast, without the necessary permit, a commander is completely locked out of a system. Some permits cannot be obtained at all, and others require the pilot to ingratiate themselves with the faction that initially requested the permit lock. It's become the perfect way for opaque organisations to hide whatever they want for entirely arbitrary reasons, with, as far as this writer can tell, absolutely zero oversight or scrutiny. Given the absolute power of the permit lock, it wasn't until late 3304 that anything of note came to light regarding LFT 509, and as with many recent mysteries, the first piece of conjecture of any merit concerned the Thargoids. An investigation into the pattern of Thargoid attacks, which at that time were hitting the bubble, were carried out by the unfortunately named commander Baddest Jerkface, who posted the result on a popular Pilots' Federation forum. He found that there were four clusters of attack sites, and by plotting a straight line between the attacked star systems, several intersections were created, each of these intersections being within 20 light-years of a permit-locked system. 
However, this itself may have been mere coincidence. After all, there are plenty of permit-locked systems in the bubble, and if you draw any number of lines that cross the most populated parts of our galactic home, there'll be a permit-locked system relatively close by. The significant thing about these permit-locked systems, though, is that except for one, the permits for these systems were completely unobtainable. The systems in question were Balika, Tilalia, LHS-2921 and CD-44-1695, with only the Tilalia permit being available. Significantly, Tilalia is one of a very small number of permit systems where a minor faction operated by Pilots Federation members can approve permit access for others. This faction, the Black Fleet, was itself ejected from Talalia in 3304, a few months before Commander Badis Jerkface made his discovery, but despite this, it has retained the right to issue permits. The next step was to find the intersection of these intersections, that's to say, taking all four clusters of Thargoid attacks and figuring out where the intersection between them lies. Within 20 light-years of this intersection lies LFT-509, nearly at the centre of the action. This becomes clearest on the galaxy map if one first bookmarks the four permit-locked systems plus LFT-509, and then views the map from the perspective of Barnard's Loop. Of course, it can be argued that this is all speculation. The human mind is built to find patterns, and it's so optimised for this job it often finds patterns and draws conclusions from sheer coincidence. You could argue that the proximity of the permit lock systems was indeed mere coincidence, especially as the author of the aforementioned hypothesis had to fudge things somewhat by looking as far as 20 light-years from the intersecting points. However, the story doesn't end here. According to legend, Raxler is a body containing an alien construct that serves as a gateway to other universes. There is also a shadowy group known as the Dark Wheel, which has dedicated itself to finding Raxler. Furthermore, other parts of the legend state that the Dark Wheel's secret base is found on the eighth moon of a gas giant. Part of the permit lock procedure isn't merely to deny access to a system, but to deny access to information about a system. As such, unless a commander charted the LFT-509 system before it was closed off, the actual makeup of LFT-509 is unknown, apart from the scant information about the star contained in the ancient Leuton 510th's catalogue. Further information is blocked by universal cartographics. However, in June 3306, the Brewer Corporation began selling the Drake-class fleet carrier to Pilots' Federation members. The significance of these vessels is that they were treated as space stations rather than as ships, which meant that if the Universal Cartographic Service was available, commanders docking at the fleet carrier could buy star charts for any system within 20 light-years. In an oversight made by Universal Cartographics, they overlooked that the fleet carriers could get within 20 light-years of all sorts of interesting permit-locked systems, including LFT-509 and Polaris, the latter being a system that has a significant history with humanity's interaction with the Thargoids. Before the Pilots' Federation or Universal Cartographics knew what was going on, star charts of various permit systems had been leaked far and wide. This leak demonstrated that LFT-509's primary star had a gas giant, and orbiting this gas giant 
was an eighth moon. Again, plenty of systems have a gas giant with an eighth moon, so what makes LFT 509 so special apart from its permit lock? The system also apparently has a population of zero. Yet charts list it as a democracy, and other details seem to indicate the presence of an economy. As it happens, the Dark Wheel faction currently marching across the bubble towards LFT 509 is also listed as a democracy. Significantly, LFT 509 was one of the first systems where Universal Cartographics plugged the leak. While this does appear to be shutting the door after the horse has left the barn, it's always possible that there are more secrets that fleet carrier owners might have been able to uncover had the leak not been addressed so promptly. Ever since the system map for LFT 509 was leaked, speculation, some of it apparently well-founded, some in the realm of pure fantasy, has been at an all-time high. The most notable theory so far is that the Dark Wheel faction is perhaps the permit giver for this system, but in order to award the permit, it must have a base of operations sufficiently close to LFT 509, say, within 20 light-years. This brings us full circle to the intersecting points all fall within 20 light-years of a permit-locked system. Given that Raxler is reputed to be some kind of alien construct, and the Thargoids move between star systems by unknown mechanisms, and that the lines drawn from the Thargoid attack clusters all seem to pass suspiciously close to LFT-509, which has a gas giant with an eighth moon, is all of this taken together, possible evidence for the location of the Dark Wheel's secret base, which may hold some of the secrets of the legend of Raxla. One thing is for certain. We'll know soon enough if the Dark Wheel faction holds the key to LFT 509. It's only a matter of time before this faction occupies space within 20 light years of the system, as it is now being driven hard by a cadre of Pilots Federation members, a subject which Sagittarius I covered in editions 29 and 30. Commander Kai Zen of the Dark Wheel estimates that the faction will be in a system within 20 light years of LFT 509 by the time this article goes to press. If the Dark Wheel does hold the key, then speculation will give way to knowledge. Given that even the smallest moon has tremendous surface area, this knowledge won't come quickly, especially if what lies on this moon is not broadcasting its presence. And secret bases, after all, don't tend to broadcast their position. On the other hand, the rumours emerging in March 3301 might be the rather more mundane explanation, and all we'll find is some old pirate's treasure. But until then, the mystery of LFT 509 remains. A hard look at hard points. Railguns. Hold the trigger. Release. Hold it again. Release once more. Target shields offline. Introducing the best in electromagnetic weaponry, the railgun. For a hard point with a cool name and a hot reputation, it does not disappoint. In the right hands both of a reputable engineer and an experienced commander, it can take down nearly any foe. Its penetration power is so high, a gimbaled variant has yet to be engineered. Not that such a thing needs to exist in the first place. 
Unlike the multi-cannons and lasers that pale in comparison next to this projectile weapon, much of its appeal is from the skill it requires and the balance it has. Precision control of one ship, as well as an advanced understanding of weapons engineering and hyperballistic mechanics, should be mandatory for any railgun owner. Honestly speaking, they should be considered deadly enough to require their own permit, and perhaps outlawed in some areas. That aforementioned penetration power? Second to none. Valued at 100, it does full damage to any ship's hull, throwing the armor hardness attribute out to the cosmic winds, and the slug can nearly get as hot as the surface of a star. Using a pair of parallel conductors spaced a small distance apart and running a charge through them, the electromagnetic force expels the slug with incredible velocity. Travelling kilometres per second out of the barrel, they redefined the order to fire. With such accuracy, impressive penetration and high magnitudes of acceleration and velocity, they may as well teleport onto targets, and they practically do. Hold the trigger, release, blink, boom! If your canopy didn't get fogged up like a mamba in the sauna from dreaming about this bloodlust satiating and metal melting marvel, just wait until Todd the Blaster McQuinn gets his cold and merciless hands on them. Being the expert he is, he highly recommends avoiding the high capacity route for any use of railguns, as the 20% increase in power draw and 60% increase in mass is not worth the mere 10% buff in fire rate. A good commander shouldn't need to double their clip size and maximum ammo capacity for a weapon like the railgun at any rate. The slug's damage division, two-thirds thermal and one-third kinetic, and armor penetration? There isn't any point in the sturdy upgrade either since it doubles its mass. If you really need that bonus in integrity, it's probably better achieved through module reinforcements which protect everything, or just unload on your opponent before they have time to strike back which is easily achievable if you know what you're doing with this souped-up slingshot covered in danger stickers and arcing electricity. You really want to sink your polarized teeth into prey. You want to do so before they even have a chance to say goodbye to their combat vouchers or the Hawaiian bobblehead on their dashboard. Long-range engineering doubles both your range and damage fall-off distance. The stock fall-off after 1km and minimum damage at 3 is easily bolstered to 6km range and fall-off meaning it does full damage, thermal and kinetic, 100% of the time. 30% mass increase and 15% power draw increase are a fair trade for these supercharged electron guzzlers. They can land a slug onto a ship from twice their maximum firing distance away, dropping their shields. Railguns are also very effective in preventing shield cell banks from bringing shields back up to full with the feedback cascade experimental effect. Hull tanking commanders are at your mercy too. These weapons are capable of single-shotting enemy power plants with their super penetrator effect through the other side of the ship from six kilometers away. Boom. The long range modification does not affect damage. So the class ones still do 37 damage per second with a fire rate of 1.6 shots per second. Likewise, class twos are 33% better in all regards while consuming an additional half megawatt and weighing twice as much at four tons. Another unique benefit from wielding these electromagnetically driven abusers is the ability to use your own fuel for ammo. In smaller ships, this is highly inadvisable unless you can keep your eyes on the fuel gauge while you squint your eyes from the fiery explosion of enemies. But in bigger ships, from the Alliance Chieftain to the Imperial Cutter, you won't ever have to worry about running out of ammo with the plasma slug effect. It does decrease damage by 10%, but it makes up for it by helping you run 40% cooler. 
They use 22 kilos and 25 kilos of fuel for each slug respective to their class. This is especially effective for the powerplay module Imperial Hammer, which uses three times that due to its three-shot burst. While nearly limitless ammo seems great, it may not be the best use for the Imperial Hammer, which can be better for commanders who are more blunt trauma than laser scalpel and use the short-range blaster. No matter your choice, however, Super Penetrator or Feedback Cascade are almost always good all-round choices, depending on who exactly your opponent is. Typically, ships at resource extraction sites won't be equipped with shield cell banks, so the former is a better option, but the opposite is true for combat with Pilots Federation members. Now, you can decide. Do you want to snipe your target before they can establish a target lock? Or would you rather melt their ship using superheated slugs by hovering around them like a stingray? Railguns can be very versatile and very effective if utilised properly. Anyone who sees these powerful weapons deploy in front of them should seriously consider diverting full power to thrusters and boosting away. Thank you for listening to issue 32 of Sagittarius I. This issue featured articles written by Adernis, Mac Winston and Ariri and was edited by Adernis, Lee Lockhart, Vertical Blank and Mac Winston. This audio edition featured the voices of Scott Cleverdon, Poet Sparrow, Spidey007, Wotherspoon and Moogiver and was edited by Wotherspoon. Music was composed and performed by Dustin, Midnight, Driscoll and Tokoso. We would like to thank our Patreon subscribers for their continued support of our efforts to entertain and inform the galaxy. By Commanders, for Commanders. For copies of back issues of our magazine, please visit our website at Sagittarius-I.com. Sagittarius I was created using assets and imagery from Elite Dangerous with the permission of Frontier Developments PLC for non-commercial purposes. It is not endorsed by nor reflects the views and opinions of Frontier Developments. No employee of Frontier Developments was involved in the making of it. Elite Dangerous is filmed in front of a live studio audience.